Mark chapter 14, we'll be starting in verse 53, reading to the end of the chapter. Hear God's word from Mark 14. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with him, were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say, began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. This is a famous scene that's imprinted on many of our minds. Jesus was just arrested under the cover of night, carried under guard to the high priest. And we can almost see it. Peter with his distressed face in the courtyard below in the dimly lit light of the fire, warming himself, trying to blend in. As Jesus is in a room above in the courtyard and you can hear yells and shouts and accusations coming from above. The guards are around in the courtyard, some of whom had just captured Jesus, no doubt. And there are bystanders, including the servants of the high priest and Peter too, following at a distance. And then the spotless lamb, the perfect Israel, the pure teacher, is standing a false trial before mere men. Men who were supposed to be the ones upholding justice laid out in Moses' law. They were breaking their own law as they put Jesus on trial here 
And at the same time, at the same time, Peter was also enduring a trial. Peter was also bearing accusations of association with Jesus, although from much less powerful people as he stood around the fire. We're going to look at, first of all, the testimony of falsehood. The testimony of falsehood. And then we're going to look at the testimony of truth. And lastly, the testimony of Peter. So let's start by looking at this testimony of falsehood. Testimony is a really important concept in this text, and it's a thread that kind of ties it together. Five times testimony or testify or witness, which is the same word, comes up in this passage. Testimony is the word that, that where we get the word martyr from. Those who bear witness to Christ are the, the martyrs. Those who die for their faith we call martyrs. And then there's also this word that's found two other times in this passage called false witness, which is literally pseudo-martyr, fake martyrs, people who don't witness to what is true. And it is actually a word used to describe the ninth commandment. Do not bear pseudo-martyr. Do not be a pseudo-martyr. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Testimony, what is said by the people in this passage is crucial to figure out the point of this passage. And all the testimonies here are given about whom, you guessed it, it's about Jesus. Who is Jesus and who do they say he is? What has he said? What has Jesus done? And who is Jesus? That's been the question at the forefront of this whole book, and it comes to a point today. Falsehood was brought as the testimony in verses 53 through 59. As Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and the scribes and the rulers. These men, however, are not doing this trial in pursuit of truth, unfortunately. The point of a trial is to discover the evidence, to find out what is true and to make a decision based on that. But instead, these men already know from their vindictive scheme what they want the end result to be before the trial even begins. There are a few things about it before we even get into the content that shows this is an unlawful proceeding. First of all, it happens at night. It's illegal. It's not supposed to happen in this court system. This is the only nighttime trial that's been recorded. Second of all, the Jewish law also prohibited the trials from being held on the eve of a feast night. You'll remember, this is the season of Passover. There cannot be a trial at this time, this type of day. Nevertheless, the trial proceeded, and the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, we see in verse 53. If this were a movie, this is the point where the tense music would start to play. The chief priests and the elders and the scribes are coming together. The strings and the minor chords start humming in the background because this is ominous. These men have been about, since the beginning, their intention has been to destroy Jesus, to kill him. And they're finally coming together here in this moment in judgment over Jesus. And before the so-called trial even begins, they have prejudged the case. They are coming with prejudice against Jesus, that he will be guilty of death. And Mark tells us this exactly in verse 55. It says they were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They were looking for whatever they could find that would support this this goal of theirs to kill Jesus. They don't care about truth. But then we hear immediately they found none. 
so you think the trial would end, right? That would be fair. No, they proceed. They proceeded, and then many stood up to bear false witness. Many proceeded to tell lies about Jesus, these pseudo-martyrs speaking. And it's fascinating that if you come to the court of the land based on the Mosaic law, you think they would uphold the ninth commandment. Yet here they are perverting their own law. They're looking for false witness. Rather than saying, do not bear false witness, they are looking for it and they're hearing it and they're receiving it as the ones who are supposed to be upholding that law. But then we hear again, their testimonies didn't even agree. And the Old Testament law required two witnesses in a case like this where capital punishment is at hand. So maybe they'll let him go without two witnesses? No, they proceed Because finally, in verse 57, they find something to accuse Jesus of. It says, some bore false witness by misquoting not only Jesus' clear intent about the temple, but also his words about the destruction of the temple, as we heard in passing from Mark earlier in chapter 13. Now, here in verse 58, they say, Jesus claimed... They say, verse 58, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Okay, first of all, Jesus never said that. He said some things that maybe could be twisted that way and indeed they were twisted. Some people think that those who are speaking up and saying this right now, by the way, are the members of the Sanhedrin. These are members who, they can't find false witness so now they start providing their own and they're twisting what Jesus had said. And these misquoted words actually don't match what he said. There is a a close quote in John chapter 2, but it's different enough that this is absolutely a misquote. And it's important to note that Jesus never referred to the sanctuary as they're referring to here. They referred to the sanctuary, the building, the temple building itself, whereas Jesus in his discussions of how the temple would be destroyed was in reference to the whole mount. Much different significance. And in John 2, when Jesus speaks of the destruction of the temple, he's referring very clearly to his body and to raising up the new temple, not made with hands, referring to his body. And that part was not preserved in this false witness, maybe intentionally left out to make it a false witness. And in the way that they quote this here in verse 58, they seem to be implying that Jesus on his own is going to physically be a menace against this building on the Temple Mount. And that is not at all what Jesus had said. It makes him look like a threat to the physical well-being of the city. But even about this, Mark tells us their testimonies did not agree. Nonetheless, Mark is reminding his readers with this quote that Jesus is about what he had said about the destruction of the temple. What he, Mark is reminding us what Jesus did say, that when properly understood, Jesus is going to raise up a new temple, and this is something that has salvific and eternal significance in removing the old ways of approaching God in this corrupt system under which Jesus is standing at the very moment. In removing the temple where we approach God through sacrifices, all that's going to be removed and it's going to be replaced through grace, access to the throne by grace through Jesus himself and what he is about to accomplish. 
Jesus is the great high priest, not this man before whom he stands. But still, the man at the time who had held the position of high priest asked Jesus to stand as a witness for himself against these false testimonies. He says, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And in a moment, we'll listen to what Jesus, to how Jesus responded. But are you catching how horrible this scene is? This, this is the stuff of movies. This is injustice of incredible kinds. They're unable to find corroborating witnesses. And once an accusation is found, even it is inaccurate, imprecise, and debated. The council listens to these lies, searching every syllable for something that they might be able to hold on to and use against Jesus. But as soon as the truth is told, which we're about to hear, they're going to reject it, grieved, furious, because they are enemies of the truth. They're not looking for truth. They're looking for falsehood to support their own agendas. The darkness of the human heart is on clear display here. Every heart without the Spirit's work of regeneration is so set against Jesus, so unwilling to listen, so good at applying the principles of a sermon to other people, not to ourselves. The human heart would side with lies that would help it destroy the invasive Savior who rules in truth and justice, but takes away our pet idols. On our own, we would side with the lies to get rid of Jesus' disruptive, invasive presence in our lives. The human heart hates Jesus, just like the Sanhedrin here hated the spotless lamb who stood before them. That's the testimony of falsehood. We see it without and we see it within. Let's look at the testimony of truth. This comes in verses 60 through 65. And in contrast with the depth of depravity we saw in the words of these false witnesses, we're about to hear pure, eternal, unadulterated truth. Truth that will stand forever. I don't say that in some ethereal sense. This is truth that still stands today. What Jesus is about to say is truth that still rules over your life and will rule for eternity. So let's listen very intentionally to what's going on and to what Jesus says here. This is the whole point to which Mark's gospel has been building. You'll remember in the very first verse, Mark says, this is the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the son of God. Finally, Jesus is going to come out publicly and admit that he is the son of God. And the high priest asks after all these accusations, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And what does Jesus first do in his response? He stands silent. His silence as they say, his silence is deafening. He knew that no matter what truth he spoke, nor how truly he spoke it, these men were not going to hear it. These people were so set against him, and he stands in silence. And it's not a pointless silence. This is fulfillment of prophecy. This is the fulfillment from the Old Testament, from Isaiah, where the suffering servant is described like this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet 
He opened not his mouth. He was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. That's how Jesus responded to these accusations. He could have called down judgment against them for their false accusations. He could have cleared himself, but he proceeded to take the sins of his people upon his shoulders and to bear this humiliation. If indeed Mark is telling the story based on Peter's witness after the fact, then what Peter says in his first letter dovetails really, really nicely. It makes a lot of sense because in 1 Peter 2, Peter says this, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds You have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus is up to salvation in his silence. You know, this message is is a message of salvation. And it literally was the text that converted a soul in the book of Acts. As the Ethiopian eunuch was reading scripture, Philip saw him and said, what are you reading? And and the the eunuch says, I don't understand this. How can I understand this without somebody guiding me? And so Philip came up and sat with him in Acts 8 and said in verse 32, now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. And I love the fact that this Ethiopian eunuch was entirely opposite to the Sanhedrin in his response. He wanted to understand and he let it soak in and he started asking questions and he's saying to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? Is it about himself or about someone else? And what does Philip do? He opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. It's a beautiful story of how Christ standing silent before his before the accusers is doing it to save his people in fulfillment of scripture for you and for me, for all who place their faith in Jesus. And his silence before them reveals that he is indeed the suffering servant. And he is the one who will die for the sins of many. (laughs) The high priest has had enough. He wants an answer. And so he just comes right out and he asks Jesus now in verse 61, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? The title son of the blessed is is not some uh, new invented phrase um, that would perhaps be the formation of a new cult. No, what, what he's doing is he's avoiding saying the name of Yahweh and he replaces it with the name blessed. It's a common thing to the Jewish people out of reverence for the name of Yahweh. He's saying, are you the Christ, the son of Yahweh? The high priest is asking finally what we've been looking for since the very beginning. Tell us, Jesus. There's been a lot of talk. There's been a lot of misunderstanding. Who are you? Are you the son of the blessed? And Jesus says, I am. 
what you and I have known since Mark 1, verse 1, is finally public. For the first time in the book, there is a public pronouncement of who Jesus is. Because when other people had found out in the past who Jesus was, what did he tell them to do? Don't tell anybody. But now Jesus stands before his killers, and there's no need to keep it quiet anymore. Here's the public pronouncement. Yes, I am the son of the blessed. And some think that as Jesus says, I am, that he's using God's name, I am, that I am. And that's possible. It would be a little bit of a surprise um, based on how Mark has written his gospel so far. Um, more than that, if, if somebody asks you the question, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, the, the natural response is either I am or I am not. And it seems Jesus answered in normal language, I am. And that is not at all to deny that Jesus claims the title of I am because he does that in other places, but it may not be what he's doing now. But even without referring to himself as I am that I am, his answer is equally earth shattering because he is claiming to be equal with Yahweh. He is affirming that he is the Christ, the son of the blessed. And then he proceeds to buttress this with even more Old Testament proof of his identity. And he begins to quote again Daniel 7, which we've seen many times. Son of man is who he claims to be again. And he says, in, without any question, in verse 62, he makes a clear statement about what he means when he says he is the son of man. He says, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is a quote from Daniel 7 about the authoritative, eternal, divine Son of Man who is with the Ancient of Days. And Jesus is claiming that divinity and that exaltation as he says he will be seated at the right hand of power. Power as well. Jesus returns in kind by not using the name of Yahweh, by using another word in replacement, saying, I am at the right hand of power. God himself. Now he's claimed to be the Christ, the son of Yahweh, and the one who sits at the right hand of Yahweh in all authority in heaven and on earth. And here's Jesus's point. This is the heart of the gospel of Mark. The person of Jesus is finally being answered. He is saying, I am divine. I stood on the streets of London trying to explain the gospel to people. And these people would come up to me and they said, in particular... Jesus never specifically said, I am God, therefore you cannot say he is God. Does Jesus utter those syllables? No, but he says it with even more clarity and richness if you just listen to what goes on in this passage. Listen to the responses, and the responses are going to tell you exactly what Jesus had said and how it was heard and how it was meant. But Jesus starts by saying, I am divine. I am the son of the blessed. I am the son of man with all authority to rule and to judge. I have position that belongs to God alone. And then he says, he is king. That's what we get when we see what Christ is saying here. He is the king because in Daniel 7, the son of man to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. The Sanhedrin wouldn't imagine, it wouldn't dare think about entertaining the idea that they might possibly serve this Jesus. But to him, 
is given dominion. You remember the enthronement implications of this phrase, coming with the clouds from heaven as he spoke from the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is the rightful heir. Jesus is the true ruler of all the world, and he does come in power and judgment. And that leads us to perhaps the most important point Jesus is making before these judges. He actually claims not just to be divine, not just to be the king, but to be the judge. As he is seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying, even though you judge me right now with a crooked, perverted use of your own Mosaic law, I will stand in judgment over you and over the entire world and over these corrupt leaders And I will judge with true righteousness and beautiful justice as the foundation of my throne. Jesus will be the one to judge them in the end. The ultimate verdict is in Jesus' hand, not theirs. And they heard him say that. These quotes that he used were that pointed And meant that much. And if anybody says, no, that's not what Jesus was really saying. Well, look at the response. How did the high priest respond? He tore his clothes in verse 63. This is a sign of grief or great distress. R.C. Sproul interprets this as saying that the high priest was furious. And he says, what further witnesses do we need? What further testimony do we need? We've had all these false witnesses, and now we hear the true witness. And this they use then to condemn him. They don't care about the truth. They're blind to the truth of what they just heard from the mouth of God himself. And so they accuse him of blasphemy. The high priest tears his clothes, says, what further witnesses do we need? He is guilty of blasphemy. And they accuse Jesus Christ of cursing God by ascribing God's honor to himself. And indeed, Jesus did ascribe God's honor to himself. But that is no curse. That is a blessed declaration of the glory of God, attributing God's glory where it is due, but they don't care. Because if it were true to them, if this Jesus actually were who he claimed to be, And of course he was. But if they understood that, it would ruin their lives. Just like it's ruined your life and my life. In the best of ways. It's a death to self. It's a putting away of this prestige we're chasing. They wouldn't have their comfort anymore. They couldn't take advantage of the poor people giving their offerings. They they wouldn't have that social power that they possessed. And their system of offerings and misusing God's house for financial and religious uh, prestige, this would all collapse because they would have to be in submission to God who stood before them in this courtroom. Oh, brothers and sisters, when Jesus' truth is proclaimed and we hear it and it starts to invade and hurt, if you find something in your heart or in your mind that squirms when the truth comes in, that wants to run away when Jesus shines his light on it, let it go. Be wary of these dark places that shake nervously when Jesus comes close. 
or else we too might end up with the hard hearts that push him away. Because rather than letting the truth invade their lives, they rejected it. They condemned him as deserving death. They look at the truth and say, that needs to die. And they spit on him and they covered his face and they struck him and they taunted him and said, prophesy. And they beat him. Little did they know that prophecy was coming true before their very eyes. And so he fulfills once again, another text from Isaiah chapter 50. He's the suffering servant who gave his back to those who strike and his cheeks to those who will pull out the beard, who did nothing who did not hide his face from disgrace or from spitting. They judge Jesus to be less than God. And by so judging Jesus to be less than God, they have committed the blasphemy against God's holiness and power and majesty. A very blasphemy that they accused Jesus of committing and they condemned him. And of course, his condemnation was not just. Of course, there's nothing, nothing blasphemous about saying that God is God. But we should not be surprised that this happened because Jesus had already said this was going to happen back in chapter 10. There are nine words that Jesus prophesied in Mark chapter 10 in this, these, these two verses I'm about to read. Nine words that are used very specifically in these proceedings. Mark chapter 10 verses 33 and 34, and I'll try to emphasize these nine words as we go through them. Jesus said, Before all this happened, he said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. We should not be surprised that this is happening Because Jesus said it would happen. When you and I hear the truth, the truth of who Jesus is, are our hearts hardened against it to reject it, to keep doing our thing in our comfort? Do we try to explain away why Jesus really shouldn't invade this part of my life? Why it's okay for me to put up a hedge around this and keep this for myself? Or are we letting the truth judge our heart? Are we letting Jesus speak in and make us uncomfortable and make us let go? I mean, you can just look online and see how people interact. They're not looking for truth. They're looking for anything they can find that'll just support their point. Are you just looking for things to support your point? Or are you in pursuit of truth? And are you willing to bow to what is right? And unfortunately, people use This, God's word, the same way. Let's go find things that we like. Let's emphasize the things that make us feel good. And let's ignore the parts that are invasive and disruptive. Let's not let this judge us, we say. Instead, let's judge it. Oh, how guilty we are of seeing and hearing and reading about Jesus. Even you and me, brothers and sisters, hearing about Jesus in pure, eternal, unadulterated truth and then condemning him with our hearts and with our lives because our lives live entirely inconsistent with what we profess to be true. So then we become the blasphemers who deserve condemnation and death. But that condemnation and death that you deserve began right here in this passage. 
Jesus bore it. What you deserve for your blasphemy against God was placed on his shoulders as he was accused of blasphemy in this moment. And so therefore you have no more condemnation if your faith is in Jesus. Because he took our sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By his wounds, you have been healed. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not be condemned to death, but have eternal life. Because Jesus was condemned here, taking your sentence for you, you are no longer condemned. Isn't this so backward? That the son of the blessed one The son of power proclaims the truth and is condemned to die while the liars and the false witnesses' words are taken as truth. Isn't it so backward that mere humans try to pass judgment on the eternal divine judge? I hope it breaks your heart to see this kind of injustice. And we see it today in different forms too. What's wrong is upheld as good. And when somebody speaks the truth, it's mocked and derided. God's good and true designs for forgiveness, for generosity, for relationships, for sex, for the use of resources. These good things are scoffed at and excused away and condemned. Woe to us if we side with the lies. Because there will be a final trial one day. And the judge will not be the Sanhedrin. The judge will not be the worldly powers or popular opinion. Especially not American online popular opinion. The judge will be the righteous one. The judge on that day will judge according to all of God's commands. This will be the lamb who gave himself, who sits now in all authority in heaven and on earth, and he will expose the crookedness of our hearts, and he will shine light on the lies, and evil will be shown in all its ugliness, and his truth in all its inexpressible beauty on that day. That's the trial we wait for. What about Peter? What did Peter bear witness to? We come to the third testimony. Now, some of you may have noticed the title of the sermon is The Two Testimonies. Peter, here's the third testimony. There's a testimony of falsehood, the testimony of truth. And now here's the testimony of Peter. Peter's testimony is going to fall into one of those first two categories. You would expect that the bold, loyal disciple is going to stand up for the truth and bear witness to the truth. But of course, we see that is not what happens The question as we look at this really is not, who does Jesus say that he is? That's established. The question is, who do you say Jesus is? Who does Peter say that Jesus is? Who does the Sanhedrin say that Jesus is? You can push him away like the Sanhedrin. You can deny his power and you can be judged on that last day. Or you can submit to him right now and let him judge the sin in your heart and cleanse you from it and stand forgiven on that last day. And what does Peter do? Well, I don't know if you noticed, we're we're in another sandwich structure here in Mark. It opens with Peter, it goes to the Sanhedrin, it returns to Peter. Peter is once again paralleled and compared to the wicked rulers. Peter becomes another pseudo-martyr, a false witness. 
It says in verse 40, uh, 54 that Peter was sitting with the guards, and that's a play on words where the Sanhedrin was coming together in verse 33. So the Sanhedrin's coming together. Peter is sitting with the guards to play on words to show Peter's aligning with those who had just arrested Jesus. He's aligning with the Sanhedrin. He is denying his association. And after all this misunderstanding and Mark and, and uh, this fuller explanation to Peter's threefold failure in Gethsemane, when he failed three times to keep watch, we're seeing it come to fruition here. He's going to deny Jesus three times. And after Jesus had finally publicly had his first no, or excuse me, yes, I am the son of the blessed, Peter gives a very clear no. He says, I do not know the man. And so he's aligning himself with those who have great earthly authority. The world looks at it and say, well, that's a smart decision because guess who you're in league with now? You're in league with the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders and the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees. They were all described as not knowing who Jesus is and now Peter doesn't know. And rather than blessing Jesus, he began to curse and swear, perhaps misusing God's own name, now making himself guilty of blasphemy. And as the Sanhedrin blasphemed by failing to give God's name the honor, it was due as Jesus stood before them. So Peter may very well be guilty of that blasphemy as well right here. And when the rooster crowed and the truth flooded back into view, Peter said, oh my goodness, Jesus did say this. Jesus is who he said he was. He prophesied that this would happen and he broke down and he wept because he saw his sin. The supernatural power of Jesus' prophecies that are of purest composition like bright platinum Compared to the Sanhedrin's lies and Peter's lies, by comparison, they're like the filthiest scum. And Peter saw that, and he saw the depth of his depravity, that even with the best of intentions before, that he said he would cling to Christ and stand with him even unto death, he's buckled and he's collapsed under the weight of temptation. Proving that his strength is only weakness. Peter collapses, he breaks down, he fell apart, he crashed. He's unable to lean on his own strength question then is, when that truth does break you down, where do you break down? Where do you let yourself fall apart? Mark's not going to tell us right now, but is Peter going to fall apart in the hands of God so that God then can forgive him and put him back together? Or is Peter going to try to lean on his strength again? We will see that when Peter encounters the resurrected Savior, what makes him different from the religious leaders who are trying to cover up Jesus' empty tomb, Peter finally looks in full faith to his Savior, and his life will become one of witness to the truth of testimony. He will become a martyr and no longer be the pseudo-martyr. So for you and me, when it starts, the truth starts to push in against our reputation and our relationships and our prestige and our income, do we push back in resistance? Or do we let it expose our sins that we might be forgiven? Be careful in this world, because the world is a lot like the Sanhedrin, standing on religious-sounding laws, misusing it for their own gain, judging Jesus. If someone in power or someone with great beauty or someone with whom we want to be associated or if there's a system that we can milk for our own benefit, if these things say that blank is true, and that is the way to self-value how quick we are to abandon Jesus for these short-lived lies before us, just like Peter. Our testimonies are a lot like that of Peter. We intend well and we'll keep Jesus at a distance so long as he doesn't 
get us in trouble with the world and put our lives at risk. Yeah, I'll call myself a Christian in these circles, but if, if this person asks me and I might get in trouble for it, I'm not going to associate with Jesus. In fact, I'm going to go over here and warm myself by the fire and pursue my comfort when my Savior is up there with false witnesses being brought against him. When I could go and stand and speak the truth. In the depth of injustice by the Sanhedrin and the depth of disloyalty by Peter, we're starting to get a glimpse, just a hint, of the magnitude of Christ's grace. Because even those pits that we have dug are filled with God's grace. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Even if you have been set against Jesus, like the Sanhedrin, even if you've used lies to push away his invasive truth, you are not a lost cause. Even if Jesus is to you one option among many, and you've not acknowledged that his reign is universal and eternal, You too can be a recipient of that grace that comes from him alone. And if you've been like Peter, pretty close to Jesus, but secretly keeping him at arm's length, denying him to defend your comfort, you are invited right now to deny yourself fully and completely instead and to take up your cross and to give your plans over and give your selfishness away and to follow Jesus. Place your trust in him. Receive the Savior as yours. Follow him. Not only as he testifies to the truth, but follow him in his death and follow him in his resurrection and live a new life. When Jesus returns in judgment, you too can be pardoned for your sins against God through Christ's righteousness that he's earned for you and gives you freely if you simply receive his grace and let it redefine your life and when you rest on him alone for salvation. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for the richness of your word, for the person of Christ. The person of Christ, so much meaning and power and depth that we can only scratch the surface of. Would we go deeper and deeper into knowing him, into thinking about him and loving him and testifying to the truth of who he is as we push away the lies of the world? Would you do this work in our hearts by your spirit to put to death our sinfulness and no longer protect these little realms of ours where we want to stay in control, but let you be the ultimate judge who cleanses the darkness out by your light? Would we live in your spirit Would you prepare us now to come and feast on this sacrifice you have given for us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.